One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, George the Sixth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. 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 Welcome to Rats Factory, reviewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. So close. We are. This is our last, uh, all being well, this is our last deceased monarch. Yeah, well, yeah. And our last king. Um, just quickly to say thank you very much to everybody who's been messaging us in the yeah. meantime. Um, follow us and message us on Twitter at RexFactPod. Uh, go and like us on Facebook, Facebook page. And I'm going to pick that up again. Get in touch <laughs> with us. Email us RexFactPodcast.hotmail.com. You can leave a comment on the website. And if you feel so inclined, you can make a donation on RexFactor.podbean.com. Yeah. But you don't have to. But no. thank you very, very thank much you. to all the people who have done. Really generous and very, very lovely of you. So... We are now on to George VI. Um, so George VI is born in 1895. Again, he's the son of George V and Mary of Teck. And he becomes king in 1936, when he's 41 years old. And war's on the horizon. It's exciting. It is exciting. <laughs> and his relation to Elizabeth II, he is her father. Wow. Doesn't wow. get much closer than that. No, I don't, yeah, exactly. I mean, I saw mine yesterday. <laughs> Things are difficult for George VI. He doesn't quite flit through life in the way that Edward VIII mm. does. And indeed it was difficult for him from day one. He was born on the 14th of December 1895, which is, of course, as we all know, is a very black day as it was the anniversary of the death of Prince Albert. Oh no. As well as uh, Princess Alice, Victoria's did... daughter. And of course this is during the reign of Queen Victoria. Yeah, so does she hate him? Does she have some sort of think he's some, some sort of omen? Well, uh, Edward VII, old friend, uh, oh, yeah son of Victoria, wrote to his son, George V, yeah. um, saying, Grandmama was rather distressed that this happy event should have taken place on a darkly sad anniversary for us. I really think it would gratify her if you proposed the name Albert to her. Oh, good lord, this woman. So sure it's enough... she's still there. <laughs> sure enough, he is named Albert Frederick Arthur George. So he's known really? in the family as Bertie. Ah, uh, of course he is. Confusingly like his uh, yeah. grandfather, Edward VII. Yeah. It works a treat. Victoria's mm. well pleased. I'm all impatience to see the new one, <laughs> born on such a sad day, but rather more dear to me, especially as we will be called by that dear name, which is a byword for all that is great and good. Do you know what she should have been called? Dunstan. It <laughs> just keeps coming back. Never, never stops. Um, his mother, Mary of Tech, however, didn't really like the name Albert. Mm. And quite prophetically, she uh, wrote that she hoped that George may supplant the less favoured name. Oh, okay. Which indeed it did. Now, his upbringing, if we recall, um, Edward VIII had a trouble with a nanny 
who oh, was yeah. a neurotic woman, Mrs. Green. She was obsessively attached to Edward VIII and used to pinch him mm, to make yeah. him cry so she could have more time with him. Uh, George VI didn't have a very good time with either because she resented him when he turned up a year later as something of a distraction mm. so that she couldn't spend all her time with Edward VIII. So she rather neglected and starved him. What was bit. that relationship between her and Edward VIII? And uh, then when she did feed him, it would often be in bumpy carriages, which would sort of give him rather unfortunate stomach problems. She'd like to starve him? Well, no, I mean, just not just, pay as much Yeah, attention. just neglect him. Yeah. Wow. So, oh, it's an amateur psychologist. <laughs> it really is, for both, both yeah. Edward and George. Yeah. And so he has chronic stomach problems throughout his life, which some have attributed to this. Inherited knock knees from his father, and mm. um, so he had to wear splints for a number of times, including in bed. Uh, Edward VIII was the only one of the children who didn't inherit it, so mm. yet again, golden yeah. boy. Um, George developed a stammer from about the age of, sort of seven or eight. Um, he was very shy and tearful. Uh, George V, something of a, an overbearing father. Oh, right. Which he found with sort of Edward VIII last time. He's oh, very course, sort yeah. of strict about things and got his... Hated turn-ups. Hated turn-ups. And George is rather overshadowed by Edward VIII. Mm. Um, if you look at pictures of young George VI, actually, you know, he's not unpresentable, but he doesn't quite have that X factor oh. that uh, Edward VIII had. And, oh, didn't we know? Um, didn't get on particularly well at school. His tutor rather bemoaned some of his efforts. At present, a scatterbrain. I really thought we had mastered division by three, but division by two seems to be quite beyond him now. Um, he passes uh, the Osborne Naval College entrance exams, albeit coming 68th out of 68. <laughs> oh, God. And uh, he does eventually progress to Dartmouth and does a lot better there. Passes his final exam 61st out of 67. So he actually, just, well, actually wasn't very bright, probably. Not very bright, rather yeah. dim. Anyway, so he's in the Navy, mm. properly, um, like his father, George V. And then 1914, of course, the First World War comes along. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, gastric problems, again, meant that he's in convalescence for quite a lot of the war, just trying to get over his stomach problems. Mm. However, in 1916, he does emerge from his sickbed to man a gun turret at the Battle of Jutland. Really? Which we'll come back to in battliness, but yes, he fights at the last great That's engagement amazing. in history. So, I, so, hang on, which William was it was the last in battle? William the... No, so, so George II. George II. Was the last to lead his troops into battle. But actually, the last monarch to fight in battle... George VI. Was only, only one removed from him. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's in the First World War, 100 yeah. years ago. Crikey, Moses. After that, he comes back. It's the 1920s. That's yeah. right in the swing of it, I imagine. The swing, you know, 20s, roaring 20s. Well, a little bit. He has some sort of girls that he quite likes, really? but really what he needs... Is a strong woman, mm-hmm. and he finds one in the form of Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, ah. known to us now as the Queen Mother. Mm-hmm. She was uh, short, uh, sort of dark hair, quite uh, pretty, with large blue eyes. Uh, the youngest daughter of the fourteenth Earl of Strathmore, right, in Scotland. Now, apparently, I haven't done gene- too much genealogical research, but apparently, she was descended from both Robert the Bruce and a Wayne Glendower. God, there's some. Treason to throw into the Very strong and uh, vivacious character. Yeah, she would have been more at home in the 20s. Very much, very popular in the London social mm. scene until which she's just been introduced. They first meet as adults in July 1920 at an RAF ball, and uh, George invited her to dance and was rather smitten with her. Elizabeth, a little less sure. That's <laughs> not so impressive character. Um, and he just started hanging around, invited himself to visit her at her country home in Glamis, <laughs> in Scotland. 
And but he was a bit down because he didn't know what to do. And a friend of his at the time, J.C. Davidson, noted that George admitted he was desperately in love but in despair because he had lost the only woman he could ever marry. Because George's logic was that as the son of a king, he couldn't propose himself in case he was rejected. What? Why? I'm not sure why, just on those archaics. <laughs> just the rule he's decided. Yeah, sticking probably. It was it probably is. just a, a shy excuse for <laughs> yeah, why he exactly. couldn't do it. Um, but Davidson advised him that a strong willed girl like Elizabeth wouldn't accept from a sort of second hand yeah. <laughs> proposal. Yeah. Uh, so he had to do it himself. However, he does have rather a large number of rivals for Elizabeth's affections. She'd been a nurse uh, at Glamis during the war when wounded soldiers had come back and also aristocratic sort of contemporaries are falling all over her. So she had something like five different proposals in these sh- few short years from wow. all these various people. Crikey, she really was popular. Throwing themselves at her. But George VI, he's the son of a king. Yeah, that is a good card to play, isn't it? And he makes a proposal in uh, February 1921. Is it one of those things where her diaries say, I suppose I really ought to accept this proposal and it's more like a marriage of convenience or does she end up falling in love? No, she turns him down. Oh, okay. And uh, then he asks her again in March 1922 and she turns him down again. No, how many years apart? A year. Uh, so that's, yeah, a year. Um, my probably my division. Indeed. That's my division. She um, sort of been reluctant to give up her freedom. She's just, you know, after the war, she's just mm. been into London social scene. Suddenly she's been asked to join the royal family. Also, perhaps she wasn't quite sure about George VI. Yeah. However, she does get to know him rather better, gets to see the sort of deeper side to him. They both got a bit more in common, both strong family values, sense of duty, mm. both religious. And so, finally, in 1923, the papers publish rumours that Elizabeth is about to marry... Edward VIII. Was mm. it a baby? Uh, hmm? was, it, was she pregnant? No, no. Oh, I thought there might be a nice bit of scandal in there. No, no. But you notice I didn't say George VI there. What? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, good Edward VIII. Yeah. Uh, George VI. Oh, God! There we go. Oh, oh God. Please drop. Oh, crumbs. <laughs> what? George VI absolutely mortified when he reads about this because Edward VIII he just trumps him in everything. Yeah. And suddenly. It was news to Edward VIII as well. He'd uh, got there was no truth in it whatsoever. Oh, okay. I'm picking my jaw up off the floor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. And uh, Elizabeth as well is rather mortified about this, and she writes to George saying, "I don't know why all these rumours. It's definitely not true." Mm. Uh, but it obviously has a good effect because a week later, George proposes for a third time, and this time she accepts. Just, just to get the story straight. <laughs> just to sort yeah. it out. Wrong brother. Yeah. Interesting what if, though, if Edward had married a rather more strong and dutiful woman that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. rather better, but that was never on the yeah. cards. So, 1923, they get married at Westminster Abbey, and he's the first royal prince since Richard II in 1382 to get married at Westminster Abbey. Really? Yeah. I thought that was pretty standard. No, yeah. only since. Yeah. Only since then, really. When she becomes queen, she's the first British queen consort mm. ever since Catherine Parr in 1543 ever since Catherine Parr all of the consorts have been foreign oh right because mm. mm, that's how we did our foreign policy I suppose for yeah. now the last time that a king was married to a British woman was James II and Lady Anne Hyde but she died before he became king despite being the uh, daughter of the 14th Earl of Strathmore she's also considered to be common 
Right. <laughs> I'm not, not a royal. Because she's Scottish. Or a foreign princess. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> but all the Hanoverians have been marrying foreign princes or princesses. So they consider that common in those days? Yeah. So it's popular with the public because it's, you know, it's, a, it's a love marriage. Mm. And she's an ordinary folk just like us. <laughs> just the 14th day. So they have the wedding, very popular, and uh, she sets something of a trend by uh, unexpectedly on the way to the wedding lay a bouquet at the tomb of the unknown warrior. Oh, nice touch. Because uh, one of her brothers had died in the First oh, okay. War, so it's sort of a memory of that. But yeah, it was also mm. very good PR. And more importantly, the family love her. Victoria's not alive, is she? What year is this? 23? 23. Fine. Victoria's okay, long gone. Good. George the I mean, I don't mean good. Sorry. <laughs> Treason. <laughs> George V, particularly enchanted with her, he was obsessed with uh, punctuality. Mm. Apparently, it was a servant that said that, like, even if you were on the stairs in a small house at the point at which the clock went, you were late. <laughs> if you were down at the table. Me. With Elizabeth, however, at one point where she turned up two minutes late for lunch. That's, that's basically half an hour. So she apologised to it. She said, You're not late, my dear. I think we must have sat down two minutes early. <laughs> that would be frustrating for everyone else. Particularly, particularly Edward the <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, however, you really should have married her. You should, yeah. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Turned everything around. Mm. Um, but Edward loves her as well. But 1920, very good relationship. And uh, he wrote, Splendid news about Bertie and Elizabeth. She is a very sweet girl, and I'm delighted. She is the one bright spot at Buckingham Palace. They all love her, and the king is in good temper whenever she's there. So it was said that whenever uh, Elizabeth was around, George V would be in a good mood. Helpful. Is all the gin? All that gin, yeah. <laughs> so, from 1920, George is the Duke of York. Mm-hmm. And he represents his father, George V, at home, because George V is sort of suffering a bit from health. Uh, problems into the 1920s and 30s. So Edward VIII is going off on all these imperial tours. George VI is doing kind of home tours. Right. Okay. So he's yeah. both, both in each camps. Um, so he also makes a few tours of the empire. Um, but Elizabeth really helps uh, improve George's confidence, gives him this sort of steel core that he didn't really have before, mm. gives him a bit more sense of direction, helps put him at his ease. And it's probably the closest royal partnership since Victoria and Albert. Oh, that's nice. However, he does have a bit of a problem in the form of his stammer. Yes, popular film thereof. Indeed. It manifested itself from sort of age of seven or eight. He particularly struggled with uh, the K in King. Oh, oh, And in effect, Queen. Um, It made him very shy, strong temper. Uh, Apparently, you just sit in the dark rooms rather than ask for a servant to come and light the gas for him. So, you know, he just sort of very much shrunk into his own little world. And he was unable to speak back to George V when he was being lectured to, so he wasn't able to stand up for himself. Um, previously, it hadn't been such uh, a big concern, but once he's representing his father more and more, he has to start doing public speaking. Mm. In 1926, at the British Empire exhibition mm. uh, at Wembley, um, he had one particular speech. This is one in the film at the start, oh, yeah, yeah. where he's stuttering a lot, and people you know, get a very public display of the fact mm. that he's um, got a speech impediment and he's about to do a tour of Australia where he's going to open Parliament at Canberra mm. oh dick Canberra mm. Mm. so he needs to be able to speak yeah Lionel Logue is the man who came in Australian speech therapist applied elocution training that he'd had as a sort of Andram man to uh, First World War veterans with shell shock so he used to look to raise their confidence rather than the British treatment of uh, shock therapy <laughs> stiff up a bit yeah have a banana 
Others had failed, and George VI didn't have a lot of confidence, but Queen Elizabeth persuaded him to go. And uh, Logue believed that his treatment um, by his tutors as a young man was partly to blame, so he'd been forced to write with his right hand, even though he's left-handed. Mm. It's apparently quite a common yeah. uh, trait among uh, stammerers. And also his uh, rather overbearing father, apparently George V, used to just bellow, Get it out! Oh, whenever George VI was stammering. Um, so he thought that was the root cause, and also he, had, he said he had faulty breathing, which is a bit of a Im- physical impediment. Uh, but Logue's approach was patient tuition and voice production combined with fostering the patient's confidence in the result. So he gave him muscle relaxation exercises, breathing techniques, got him to speak more slowly, to gargle, intone vowels at open windows, practising tongue twisters, and also boosting his self-confidence. Mm. And Shaw's thick showing his uh, commitment to duty, really works hard at this. So from 20th of October 1926 to 22nd of December 1927, he has 82 appointments with Logue. Wow. Every spare moment... Uh, dedicated to doing this and it transforms his ability to speak in public and his self-confidence so he wrote from Australia saying that he could now say the king without difficulty so he could raise toasts all the time and when he spoke to George V after coming back he did so with no trouble at all also I can make him listen and I don't have to repeat everything over again well that must have been done wonders for his confidence so of course famously in the king's speech we see in the coronation mm. oaths he's able to do the speech at the start of the second world war during the war and in 1944 the state opening of parliament George stumbled over the W the work in weapons Logue asked him why it troubled him and he said I did it on purpose if I don't make a mistake people might not know it was me <laughs> oh wow that is some proper control over weak <laughs> so together we've got Elizabeth and Logue in the 1920s really give him a boost and it helps improve his relationship with his father um, and he in fact became the favourite son of George V. Oh, because Edward there was then off gallivanting. And Edward was gallivanting. So as George writes to him, saying, you've always been so sensible and easy to work with, and you've always been ready to listen to any advice and agree with my opinions about people and things <laughs> that I feel we've always got on very well together. Very different to dear David. So he likes him because he agrees with him and does what he's told. And he's got a nice wife. Mm. Yeah. So, 1936, George dies, Edward VIII becomes king. Mm. All's well and good, mm. except that Edward VIII wants to marry a t- well, a, about to be twice divorced American, Wallace Simpson. And of course, in the Church of England, you can't remarry if your previous spouse is already no is alive. Yeah. So there's that. He's already alive. He's already alive. <laughs> Frankenstein. Fine. <laughs> um, so there's a standoff between the two of them. The abdication crisis. George VI is sidelined throughout this period. Um, the close relationship he'd had with Edward in the 1920s does rather disappear once Wallace Simpson turns up. Edward just mm. becomes enraptured with her. Doesn't really have much time for anybody else. And imagine George didn't like Wallace Simpson because of the effect she was having on the family. Yeah, George wasn't quite so anti, but uh, Elizabeth, oh, very, right. very anti. So, uh, he doesn't really see Edward VIII, and as such he didn't realise how severe the problem was until pretty late on. Uh, in the process so on the 17th of November Edward told him that he was going to marry Wallace even if it meant abdicating and then the 10th of December George and his other brothers witnessed Edward signing the instrument of abdication and on the 11th of December 1936 George VI becomes George VI so the first time that um, George VI meets up with Edward Mm. is when Edward's telling him that he's going to abdicate basically saying you are going to be king and he doesn't really see him and it's almost a month after that but he doesn't really see him again until just so he's had beforehand. no prep. He's had no time to mentally steel himself to suddenly being king. No, 
Good grief. And he's absolutely dreading it as yeah. he uh, writes to uh, Lord Mountbatten. This is absolutely terrible. I never wanted this to happen. I'm quite unprepared for it. David has been trained for this all his life. I've never even seen a state paper. I'm only a naval officer. It's the only thing I know about. And uh, his mother, Queen Mary, noted that he was devoted to his brother and the whole abdication crisis made him miserable. She sobbed to my shoulder for an hour. Oh, that's, that's terrible. Because, of course, you know, he's got his stammer, he's shy. The idea mm. of being in the limelight... In the largest nation in the world. ...is absolutely terrifying. Interesting, both George VI and Edward VIII burst into tears when they realised <laughs> they'd been lumbered. <laughs> well, I suppose it was both during the 20s at the absolute height of empire. Yeah. It's never going to be a bigger burden. Yeah. Um, and there, it's a difficult situation for him as well. Edward VIII, as we saw last time, very charismatic, very popular... Um, mm. among much of the public who also didn't know until very late on mm. that this was all kicking off um, Lang, Cosmo Lang, the Archbishop of Canterbury who'd been that rather murky oh, yeah, presence um, he made a, a broadcast after the abdication very critical of Edward VIII but he also um, chose to help out George VI by telling everybody um, a, that uh, they might notice he has a little trouble with his speaking oh that guy and particularly because George had been doing quite well yeah. in recent years, a lot of people have grown up not really knowing about it. And just ways to knock his confidence. I don't like that man. Exactly, and he's got all of these... Uh, he's had, you know, sort of slight health issues. So there's press speculation in Britain and America that he has a falling fit, i.e. epilepsy. Oh, right. And that he's basically not going to be up to the job. So it's a very difficult position in which, uh, in which to take over. However, he announces that he's going to be named George rather than Albert mm. so that's the second time that we've had a royal called Albert yeah. Victoria still doesn't get an Albert <laughs> first uh, so it's continuity from his father so it's kind of as if George, uh, Edward VIII never happened oh yeah that's e- everything yeah. going on unlike his brother he's got a very strong sense of duty so he said to Baldwin the Prime Minister that he was determined to make amends for what has happened mm. so he's going to have a coronation Edward VIII of course the first since Edward V not to have a coronation yeah yeah. Oh, imagine that one. That would have been amazing. Mm. Pomp and ceremony and all that. So, it goes ahead exactly as, as was planned for Edward VIII, even on the same day, only differences. Different head. Really? So... For the crown to go on. Wow. Now, this is where we have great fun with the coronation. Always something going wrong. Yeah. George VI rehearses extensively to ensure that nothing goes wrong. Please tell me there's a horse backwards. There was a bit of a blip in rehearsals at one point where the orb went missing. <laughs> but then they found uh, his youngest daughter, Princess Margaret, playing with it on the floor. <laughs> and got it back. However, there were a few little mishaps at the service. Cosmo Lang uh, yeah, go on, made again. it impossible for him to read the oath at one point because he was holding his thumb over the vital words. <laughs> so he couldn't really see it. Uh, one of the clergy fainted. Uh, and another one was standing on George's robe at one point when he was kneeling down after being cramped so that he couldn't stand up. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, it all went pretty okay. well. Speech delivered perfectly, very popular with the public, and the service was broadcast in its entirety on radio, and it was also the first procession of the major outside broadcast by the BBC. Oh, right, all around the Empire job. Mm. Mm. They weren't allowed to film inside, No but radio did. And Queen Mary broke with tradition by attending in person. Because well, really? as the Queen Mother, you wouldn't usually attend. It was sort of this tradition the Queen Mother didn't attend. Oh, right. But she did for this yeah. one to show him support. However, not all of the family are getting on quite so well. There's a rather sad estrangement between George VI 
and the former Edward VIII. Uh, Elizabeth has said strongly opposed to Wallace, and they're both concerned about Edward's potential to divide the country. Mm. George, it is uh, George VI, is who actually advises that they create him as the Duke of Windsor, so that he can't stand in Parliament. Would he, was he likely to? Unlikely to, but it's never, never know. Yeah, never know. A wild card. Particularly in the context of what's happening elsewhere in the 1930s, the charismatic yeah. man who can take power. But it's sad to think that he couldn't just say, no, I'm not going to stand for Parliament, and they'd just leave it at that. They mm. actually had to try and block him. Well, as it turns out, it's probably just as well not to have too much faith in him, because George particularly disillusioned with Edward when he discovered that he'd brazenly lied about the state of his finances. So that's when he'd asked for more money, and he'd claimed to have about £90,000 in the whole world, and he actually had fourteen millions. Why did he do that? It's, it's a mystery, because there was no way they weren't going to find that out quite easily. And that really sours relations between yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, Edward was phoning George VI quite a lot, because this was this period where George, Edward and Wallace couldn't be together until mm. the divorce was finalised, so he was just on his own with nothing to do and calling his brother up and ranting mm. at him on the phone. So those calls were stopped. And then the real um, dividing line was over the issue of titles. Mm. Quite ironic, given how Edward VIII was so against the whole system, but mm. he ends up being a bit of a stickler for it. George presumed that it was his discretion to bestow titles upon people, so therefore he didn't have to make Wallace her royal highness. That is definitely true, though, isn't it? Because that's the, what the <coughs> Queen got in trouble for with um, Diana after she... Well, at the time, it wasn't the case. They looked into it, and actually it's just automatically bestowed. If you marry a man, yeah. then you take his rank. Mm. As they pointed out, rather awkwardly, that's how Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's wife, had become the Duchess of York. Mm. It just happened automatically. So they decided they wanted to do something about it. So they got Sir John Simon, uh, former Liberal and now effectively Conservative Liberal, the one who's recently been in the news for having bugged Edward VIII oh, yeah. during yeah, the abdication yeah, yeah. crisis. Yeah. Um, he looked into it to find some kind of solution, and uh, eventually they argued that only those in the line of succession could be an HRH. Isn't this a bit unnecessary? What difference would it have made? Well, yeah, I mean, legally it was a bit dubious. And actually, Baldwin and Chamberlain didn't really mind her becoming an HRH. It was really George and Elizabeth that were so anti because they didn't want to sort of damage the brand, as it were. Mm. And they thought, if they become an HRH and then they have children and then she gets divorced and marries somebody else, then it's kind of... She's got previous. She's got previous. Uh, But ironically, they basically, by... Wallace then married Edward, but didn't take his title. Mm -hmm. So that was actually a morganatic marriage, which was exactly what they wouldn't let him do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As king. Yeah. So quite hypocritical, really. Yeah, and a bit petty, the whole thing towards the end. It's a bit petty. George would have just let it go. Mm. However, when Edward uh, wrote to him, really angry about this, George wrote back... Uh, saying, how do you think I like taking on a rocking throne and trying to make it steady again? It has not been a pleasant job, and it's not finished yet. Hmm. So he's very much got the sense that he's got that the throne is in danger, and Edward VIII nearly ruined everything, and he's got to pull it all together. Hmm. So there's you know there's always two sides to these things, but it's rather sad. And this is even before Edward goes off and does all his mischief around Europe in the Second World War. Yeah, mm, yeah. immediately before. Glad we didn't give it to him. Now, usefully there, you just set up, because as you said, there is something of a storm on the horizon. Mm. The gathering storm. The gathering storm. (laughs) As Churchill phrased it. 
background to this, and uh, we're going to say a little bit of a pause for George VI at the moment as we turn to international affairs. Yes, the Second World War, how exciting. First World War. Okay. <laughs> After that, and the Treaty of Versailles, there was established the League of Nations. Yes. So all the countries join, and the idea is that if any one country invades another, they all band together mm. to support yeah. the other one. This will mean that <clears throat> nobody will ever invade again because you've got collective international resistance. Mm. Peace will triumph. Unfortunately, the US don't join. Yeah, why did they never join? They were quite isolationist, and particularly after the First World War and their involvement with that, they thought, well, why do we want to get involved in Europe's petty yeah. imperial squabbles again? So America don't join, and really Britain and France are the only two kind of active members that can actually do anything. And unfortunately, there is no appetite to do anything. After the First World War and all the carnage that that involved, and there was also a sense that Versailles, uh, the treaty, peace treaty of Versailles was too harsh on Germany, most people were desperate to avoid war at any cost. Mm. And so there was a policy which we now call appeasement, mm. whereby if anyone was quite aggressive, you know, you just sort of try to keep them in their place, but you're not, gonna, you're not actually going to fight mm. over it because war's a bad thing. They've learned their lesson. Hence um, the League of Nations, though. It's, a, it's weird logic. Very weird logic, yeah. Unfortunately, however, in the 1930s, uh, we see a rise in fascist governments mm. all across Europe. Um, Italy, uh, Mussolini, actually from 1925, and particularly 1927, Mussolini uh, takes power in Italy. Of course, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party from 1933 in Germany. Mm. Um, and then 1937, the Axis powers are established with Japan and uh, various other fascist countries to basically say that, ironically, their own little League of Nations, whereby... If any of them get invaded by communists, i.e. Russia, then the rest of them all band together. Right, and they've got them on both sides there, Germany and Japan. Yeah. So the League, when it's put to the test, doesn't do very well. 19 <clears throat> 1931, Japan invaded Manchuria, a uh, territory of China. China appealed for help. The League said, oh, Japan, that's not on. And Japan shrugged its shoulders and just left the League. Right. Job done. Yeah, that's the end of the League then. <laughs> Uh, Hitler, of course, really pushes his luck. He wants to expand German territory. He says just back to where it was before the Treaty of Versailles, but nevertheless, he's not meant to. Mm. So the Rhineland was a demilitarised zone and sort of industrial land, very prosperous. Hitler sends in his troops, claims it back, and they don't do anything. Who was it? Was ownership of the international community before? Yeah, well, it's, it's demilitarised, right. basically, and, but... Yeah. Hitler puts in troops. Nothing's done. Uh, and Mussolini prepares to invade Abyssinia, which is a modern-day Ethiopia. Uh, Abyssinia asks for help. The League imposes sanctions on Italy, though not coal or oil. Mm. Uh, but they're still not sure what to do, so Hoare and Laval, British and French foreign ministers, make a pact to give Italy two-thirds of Abyssinia. What? Uh, so weird. And Mussolini just invades anyway, and mm. the League doesn't bother to keep the sanctions up yeah I mean ever since they, they didn't defend China mm. that, that's the end of it really end of it? it and so Hitler starts to push further and further mm. uh, after the war the Austro-Hungarian Empire is broken up so you just have this rather sort of related Austria instead many of whom want unity with Germany but the government rather uneasy about the idea of linking with Nazi Germany mm. so they're planning to hold a plebiscite on their independence so Hitler claims that there are lots of riots going on against Germans, sends in the troops to restore order, and while he's there, decides he might as well organise the plebiscite, 
And incredibly, 99.73% vote for Angela. That's just such with an Germany. unrealistic outcome. These people who rig elections, can't they just make it sort of 63? Apparently on the ballot papers, like, there was the, like, the yes and no. Yeah. A massive box for yes. <laughs> and like I, a sort of tick here if you no longer wish to subscribe to yeah, that box. With a sort of soldier standing by yeah. as well. Uh, so there is unity between Austria and Germany. And the next one is shopping list, Czechoslovakia. Uh, this is a new country, uh, again formed after the war, um, with a very prosperous industrial area called the Sudetenland. Mm. Hitler, again, claims you know there's a majority German population, it should all be part of ours, so he's preparing to invade. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, who's been pursuing this policy of appeasement, is now sort of thinking, oh, this is getting a little, mm. little bit more than we're really comfortable with now. Um, so he flies and visits Hitler at uh, his Alps retreat in Birch's garden, mm. and they're negotiating. And uh, bizarrely, the the real man who's is kind of the peace broker in the 1930s is Mussolini. Mm, right. Which is why the British and French are quite pro-Mussolini in a way, because they see him as kind of a restraint on Hitler, and they're quite nervous about pushing him right. away. So he organises a four-power conference at Munich to determine the future of Czechoslovakia. Obviously, the Czechs aren't invited. No, yeah, come on. And, and indeed their country is effectively broken up the Sudetenland is given to Germany and then pretty much the whole thing just gets annexed but why are we so weak in these situations just, just because of this policy of appeasement well yes but sure enough Chamberlain returns home and is greeted at the airport as a national hero waving his little bit mm. of paper and proclaiming in an echo of Disraeli in 1878 peace in our time mm. Hitler has signed a paper saying that's it I'm definitely done no more countries, you and I, Britain, we're going to be friends. No war. Right. But not everyone's happy about it. Who's this cheeky jappy? Somebody isn't too happy about it. He's been in many of our episodes doing little cameos, but yeah. now is the time for him to get his own starring moment. Yeah. It's Winston Churchill. Woody! Born in 1874 in a bedroom at Blenheim Palace, uh, because he was descended from the Duke of Marlborough, the uh, great general under Queen Anne. And he lived in Dublin, Oddly, until he, uh, between ages two and six, and he was a very sort of independent, rebellious child. He didn't get on too well at school, but he found a bit of order in his life when he joined the army. Right. Eighteen ninety-five, he observed Spanish fighting uh, Cuban guerrillas. Came under fire on his birthday, for which he was awarded a medal by the Spanish, hmm. and then developed a taste for Havana cigars. Right. The Cubans. Uh, 1896-97 saw action in India then 1898 he took part in the last meaningful British cavalry charge at the Battle of Omdurman did he really? in Sudan he didn't poor need. horse well indeed <laughs> he, was, he was lighter uh, but actually he does uh, in the Boer War he obtains a commission as a war correspondent mm. so he's not technically there as a soldier he's a journalist uh, but he's on an armoured train which gets derailed by shell fire from the Boers so despite not being a soldier at the time, Churchill just takes control, starts organising the men, trying to push the derailed carriage off the tracks. All the while, heavy gunfire and shell fire raining in on him. Wow. They weren't able to clear it, so they just he then started putting the wounded onto the back of the engine so that could just go off down the tracks. But after half a mile, he hopped off and went back to find one of his friends. Unfortunately, the Boers had come along at this point, so he's suddenly confronted by all these armed men. Yeah. So then he goes running off, and in true sort of 1960s James Bond style, mm. shooting at him, all missing. Uh, but then a horseman comes charging at him, and he has to surrender. 
Wow. So he gets captured. Wow. Presumes that he's going to be released straight away because he's a he journalist. He's British, I think. Well, <laughs> but he's got the papers to prove he's a journalist. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Boers have read all the newspaper reports about his heroic exploits at the train and think there's no way that this guy is, yeah, a, yeah. is a journalist. So, he is trapped, he's captured. However, he wants to escape. Mm. And he writes to the commander of the Boer army to tell them he's going to escape. So naturally. I'm yeah. doing it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're serious. <laughs> Crazy talk. This is straight out of a Jews and Worcester book. So he uh, finds part of this wall uh, where he is being held that can be scaled, which is by the latrine. Mm. But unfortunately, his friends uh, weren't able to join him, so he has to go off alone with no compass, no map, no money, and not being able to speak the language. Um, so he escapes uh, onto a goods train and then very fortunately happens upon an English coal mine mm. so the owner helps him hides him in the mine for three days um, which not great conditions in there it was uh, infested with rats and in a lovely phrase the mine owner said that at one point the rats commandeered Churchill's candle <laughs> just sitting there in the dark oh, looking a bit stressed out uh, but they then got him onto another train which got him out out of the Boer territory and he was free so Wee. he jumped off the train onto the carriage running along jumping in the air and shooting <laughs> his revolver so he becomes a bit of a minor celebrity back home in Britain minor celebrity <laughs> uh, so in 1900 he's elected as a Conservative MP um, but he rather falls under the spell of the Welsh radical Liberal MP David Lloyd George mm. sure enough in 1904 he crosses the floor and becomes a Liberal Wee. with Lloyd George um, he is a radical social reformer mm. Uh, opposes naval expenditure in favour of social reforms. The future Lord of the Admiralty. Indeed. He introduces his first sort of minimum wages that the country has seen, labour exchanges to help uh, people get work, and national unemployment insurance with Lord George, who worked on that bill. So really radical reforms at this point. However, then he becomes Home Secretary, (laughs) and uh, the other side of Churchill rather kicks in. There's one point, there was a siege um, by anarchists at Sydney Street, and Churchill was criticised for his very public presence, i.e. he was pretty much literally there on the front lines and he was sort of seen pointing his umbrella, potentially ordering the police <coughs> oh, right. what to do as if it was a military yeah. uh, military engagement. I also apparently stopped the fire brigade putting out a fire when it caught, well, putting out a house fire that the anarchists were in. Wow. And Lloyd George also recalled one point where he, Lloyd George, had um, stopped a strike from going ahead through his wily, wizardy negotiation. Mm. And he came back and found Churchill very disappointed in a room with maps and troop layouts and all sorts <laughs> of things that he was planning. Oh dear. He then becomes, as you said, First Lord of the Admiralty. Gives him to various reforms, aviation, uh, new warships. He's in favour of that now that he's mm. got it. Tanks, he's very important in the oh, right. research into tanks. Uh, but he was forced to resign in the First World War after the failure of the Gallipoli campaign, mm. the uh, failed landings in Turkey. So, what he does, he rejoins the army. And he goes off to the Western Front, into the trenches. So he spends three months in the trenches. He just joins as a... a starts all over again. Well, no, I think he's a lieutenant colonel, I think he was. There are no major attacks on his part of the line in those three months. But, you know, there's continuous shell fire, and he makes lots of forays into no-man's land. So, you know, he puts himself back out there. How close, <laughs> do we know how close Churchill and Hitler ever were to each other in the First World War? The well, yeah, they're both in the trenches. Yeah. Hitler was there as well, he got wounded. They never met Hitler and Churchill, but there's one point later when they were going to meet, when Churchill and his wilderness years, who we'll come to, was in Germany, mm-hmm. and Hitler was on the rise, so he made an appointment to meet him. But Hitler cancelled the meeting because he thought that Churchill was a little bit too wacky and out there. 
and it might, <laughs> and, it, and it might spoil his international reputation if wow. he met with Churchill. Good grief, that's damning. But after three months, Churchill got bored and came back to be an MP again because yeah. he had that luxury that, of course, other soldiers didn't. So then we have the Lloyd George Coalition, 1918-22, and Churchill encourages Britain's involvement in the Russian Civil War so that we can strangle Bolshevism in its cradle. He was instrumental in setting up the Black and Tans in Ireland. Oh, dear. Uh, but he does then help negotiate the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Also is in favour of invading Turkey, which led to the fall of the Lloyd George Coalition, and sanctioned the use of tear gas against Kurds in Iraq. Although it wasn't actually used, but... That, so, which is exactly what Saddam Hussein then went and did. But Hussein actually did it, whereas Churchill <laughs> said that he could it, do it. It was a lot worse <laughs> than tear gas. <laughs> and uh, 1922, Churchill loses his seat. He was suffering from appendicitis, so he couldn't campaign uh, in Dundee. So as he said, he left, um, left Dundee without an office, without a seat, without a party, and without an appendix. <laughs> So then he comes back into Parliament, and this time he's a Conservative MP. Mm-hmm. So as you said, anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenuity to be rat. <laughs> so he's crossed the floor twice. Yeah. Because of the lack of <coughs> senior Tories, he's appointed Chancellor. What? So straight he, away? Straight away. So he returns Britain to the gold standard, oh, which yes, proved yeah. rather disastrous. And then during the general strike, set up a government paper, the British Gazette, uh, and said that the government would support the army in any action that they may find it necessary against strikers. Bad news. Indeed. But however, after that, in the 1930s, we have his wilderness years. He falls out with the party leadership. He's not invited to join the national government. He publishes his biography of his uh, ancestor, uh, Marlborough. Opposes Gandhi and Indian independence movements. Yeah, there's a number of little bits of his character that aren't quite so hard and after his strong public support for Edward VIII and the abdication crisis he rather thought his career was over mm. however there's one thing after all this litany of disasters there's one thing he does get right and that's appeasement yeah now initially he's actually a bit more ambiguous he's more concerned with the USSR or Russia and communism however from an early stage he's warning against allowing Germany to have military parity with France calling for Britain to rearm and, and he was given inside information on German air power, so he, you know, he wanted the RAF to be built up, he wanted our defences to be stronger, and he's heavily critical of Chamberlain's continued appeasement of Hitler. Mm. So after the Munich settlement, um, he said to him in House of Commons, you were given the choice between war and dishonour. You chose dishonour, and you will have war. How prophetic. Very prophetic. Germany and the USSR, despite being absolute arch rivals, mm. arch rivals enemies, mortal enemies, yeah. mortal enemies, that's a slightly stronger and better mm. phrase, <laughs> signed a non-aggression pact um, so that you know they agreed spheres of influence yeah. in Eastern Europe. Poland, to split it to... Exactly, but Britain decides enough is enough. You don't touch Poland. Why did we choose that as the red line? I guess you had to draw a line in the sand some, at some point. But why not Czechoslovakia? Because Church- Chamberlain was still in power at this point. Right? He was, but uh, after Czechoslovakia, Hitler had made that agreement. That's mm. it. No more. Okay. Oh, so we then had this to fall back on. Yeah. Right, okay. So, Britain issues an ultimatum, and unfortunately, in Ch- Chamberlain said in his famous speech, Germany did not respond, and as such, there was war. Because the troops had started rolling into Poland. The troops started rolling in. So, 3rd of September 1939, Britain and France declare war on Germany. Initially, not a lot happens. Phony war. Phony war. No major military initiatives, religious or naval engagements, but 
no big battles. However, May 1940, Germany invaded Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, and they preempted Britain by invading neutral Norway. Mm. And when Britain counterattacked, it failed. They had to evacuate. Yeah, that's a forgotten little campaign in Norway. It is. Mm. And uh, it doesn't go down very well in Parliament, this happens. Um, Chamberlain is vilified uh, by many, and there's a vote on the motion of no confidence in the government. Leo Amory famously quoted Cromwell, saying that you have sat too long for any good you have been doing. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. Wow. Yeah. Vote comes, uh, the Tories win, but their majority reduced from over 200 to just 81 Chamberlain resigns. Right. Now, George VI, remember him? Mm-hmm. And uh, Chamberlain wanted Lord Halifax to be the next man as Prime Minister, but Halifax said he couldn't lead from the House of Lords. Mm. So, there's only one man who can do the job. It's Winston Churchill. It doesn't seem like the natural choice, though. The thing is, he's been increasingly popular because people say, oh, he was right mm. about Hitler, and he was previously an MP. You know, he's done pretty much every single every job, job in the have. cabinet. Yeah. yeah. So, as Churchill said, uh, His Majesty received me most graciously and bade me sit down. He looked at me searchingly and quizzically for some moments and then said, I suppose you don't know why I have sent for you. Adopting this mood, I replied, Sir, I simply couldn't imagine why. He laughed and said, I want to ask you to form a government. And he does. Boom. Proper national coalition, all the parties, Conservative, Labour, Liberal, mm. all in it together. It, uh, it doesn't actually go very well. As soon as Churchill takes over, we have the fall of France. Mm, yeah. Germany sent tanks through the Ardennes forest and France defeated in just six weeks. So this forest, um, remind me, was part of their incredible Maginot Line defences where they went, no one's going to go through a forest. Exactly. So they just went through the forest. The Maginot Line is this impenetrable line that mm. you can't break through, but there's a gap mm. with a forest. And so Germany just goes around the line. Amazing. <laughs> Foolproof plan. Uh, Britain evacuates over 300,000 troops from the uh, beaches at Dunkirk and then destroys the French fleet in Algeria. Yes, yeah, which there's a bit of um, scandal around this because we could have just used the French fleet, uh, brought it into the um, British fleet. The concern that Churchill had was that it would fall into German hands. On the way. Mm, and they couldn't afford for the Germans to get all these ships, so safe is bet. was just scuffle and a lot of French sailors killed as a result, but it showed the US that Britain had got the stomach for the fight. Oh, so they weren't, they weren't actually scuttled as in people going along and personally scuttled, they were... Oh, no, f- bombed. Yeah. Wow. Mm. But after the Battle of France, of course, we had the Battle of Britain. Yes. Uh, Germany had a plan to invade, so we'd had the Battle of the Atlantic, where heavy damage had been done to merchant ships by U-boats... Um, US sent destroyers and escorts helped to adjust the balance but Germany sending in they're attacking but the RAF holds them off and then the Blitz where they're bombing civilian mm. populations fails to destroy morale and Germany in the end give up another classic Churchill quote coming uh, we'll come to it in, okay. uh, in battliness 1941 is a very good year for Britain because we should get some friends. Mm-hmm. Germany invade Russia. Error. He's and never played risk. Indeed, never played risk. Uh, came very close to victory, mm. of course, Germany and Russia, but they're hemmed in and then the harsh winter of 1941 stops them in their tracks. Japan also in that year launched a surprise attack on the US at Pearl Harbor. Mm. So America joined the war and then Russia are now 
with us. So America joined the war in December, so really it's 42. Start yeah, 42 so from 42 on. onwards, we've really actually working together with allies. Right. Finally. Previous as well as, of course, so. all the empire. Yeah. So, the tide turns. In 1942, Britain wins its first victory against Germany at El Alamein, oui. Montgomery. Uh, Russia hold out in horrendous conditions in the siege of Stalingrad. Mm. 1943, Germany is defeated in North Africa by um, Anglo-American troops, and they're being fought out of Russia back towards their own borders. Yeah, it's all going backwards now. In 1944, 6th of June, Britain, America and Canada launch a second European front, D-Day landings. Yeah. Land on the French beaches, and at the end of August, Paris is liberated. Mm. Bit of a setback when the Germans have the counter-offensive at the Battle of the Bulge, but, again, it's held off. Russia, Western Allies, push into Germany from both sides. April 1945, Russia storm into Berlin. Hitler commits suicide in May... Germany surrenders. Mm. Uh, and then in July, the US dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, mm. uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the war was over. 1945, it's a general election. It's actually between VE and VJ Day. Mm. George VI and Churchill wanted the coalition to continue until the end of the war in Japan, but Labour, once Germany was defeated, they wanted to go to an election. And in what is, for many people, one of the massive surprises when you look at uh, this period of history... Churchill, with popularity ratings of 83%, hugely popular war leader, Labour win the election. Mm. And they don't just win the election, they win it with a huge majority of 146, and for the first time ever, win more votes than Conservatives. Oh, wow, so this is the turning point for them. Yeah, completely destroyed Conservatives at the election. I remember asking my grandmother about that, because yeah. I, was, I used to love the Battle of Britain as a kid. Love yeah. it, you know, it was a fascinating time. As a kid, I've grown up. <laughs> I, just loved, I loved all their planes and stuff. <laughs> And she was saying that um, it was just because they were bored of war, mm. and although they respected him, he reminded them of war. Which yeah. I think is probably fair. So Churchill's campaign was very much about finishing the job. Mm. Still all about the war. Also, the Conservative Party is very unpopular. They're associated with the guilty men of appeasement oh, in the yeah, 1930s, course, yeah. so there's still that sense. Also, though, in 1942, the Liberal William Beveridge publishes very um, lively... Uh, report, the Beveridge Report, as it was known, which uh, bizarrely for a policy document was really embraced by the public. But this was calling for huge post-war reform, slaying the five evil giants of squalor, ignorance, want, idleness and disease. Mm. Great reforms that they were planning. Labour and Liberal sign up to it, conservative seen as being a bit lukewarm. And Churchill returns to form, has an awful electorate. <laughs> yeah, he's back. After five years um, in coalition with Labour, he then says that in order to enact state socialism, they'd have to introduce a Gestapo. What? To make it happen, for which he is roundly ridiculed. Are you joking? That's what he says publicly. The idea is just Clement yeah. Attlee. Yeah. Gestapo. I'm a big Attlee fan, but he was quite rude about Attlee, wasn't he? He did say some rude things. He claimed that he didn't say all of them. Oh, really? There was one about saying that, you know, an empty car pulled up and Clement Attlee got out of it. <laughs> the thing is, he's so funny with it. A I'm sheep in sheep's clothing, or a modest man with much to be modest about. That was the one I was thinking of, yeah. Actually, Clement Attlee is a very distinguished man. Yeah. He's just a quiet man, in comparison mm. to Churchill. He served with distinction in the First World War. He was the penultimate man to be evacuated from Gallipoli. Really? Um, and he was also then later wounded in Iraq before spending the last three months on the Western Front. I had no idea. I thought he was complete. I thought it was his timidity would have... No, he was uh, promoted to major by the end of the war. 
So he's very impressive uh, war record. His only crime, possession of a dodgy moustache. Indeed, like his dodgy moustache. Despite being at Gallipoli, he actually thought it was a good plan, so he actually respected Churchill's mm. tactical now, so it was quite important for their relationship, because he was a strong supporter of Churchill during the war, particularly in 1940, when there was that question of whether Britain continued fighting or not, mm. apparently very much back what, When was that? What, after Norway? So, uh, well, sort of after the fall of France. Okay. Right. So Britain about to come up. And he was largely in charge of home affairs, so again, the Labour ministers were largely the ones that the public saw at home, whereas Churchill and Anthony Eden are the ones that are flying off around the world doing world affairs. Mm. So that Labour associated with the home front. Mm. Initially, George VI struggles a bit with Attlee, because Attlee was known for his sort of long silences, mm. not really saying anything, and George VI being a bit of a shy, shy chap as well, and just sort of sitting there in awkward <laughs> silence. <laughs> However, they actually developed a very good working relationship. Both got a good, strong sense of duty, all that sort of thing. So we have the first truly socialist Labour government enacted wide-scale nationalisation of industry, set up the National Health Service. Mm. However, there was also post-war austerity, no money to go around, and we see the break-up of the British Empire. Yeah, well, you see, in a time of austerity, they set up the NHS. That's incredible. It's incredible. For George VI, however, he isn't able to enjoy the peace. The war took its toll on his already not particularly strong health, and he never really gets over it. 1948, he developed severe arteriosclerosis, which is a thickening of the arteries. Mm. Uh, doctors feared they may have to amputate his leg. Oh, so sure you're going to say heart, then. <laughs> amputate his heart. <laughs> <laughs> that might kill him. <laughs> We've got a plan. <laughs> um, and the doctors recommended that he give up smoking, and he basically should just live as an invalid. Yeah, giving up smoking is definitely a good idea. Though, definitely a good idea. 1951, he was found to have lung cancer, mm, though he okay. wasn't told about it. Why? Because there was a funny stigma about cancer in those days. He didn't, he didn't talk about it, so they didn't tell him that he got cancer. Um, so he carried on smoking? Well, no, they, they had to remove his entire left lung. Good grief in 48 or...? Uh, 51. This is Imagine that procedure then. Yeah. Lord. Um, so, Princess Elizabeth... Mm. the oldest daughter is taking on more royal duties and so she goes on tour to Australia and New Zealand via Kenya in 1952 George VI waved her off at London airport and then on the 5th of February spent the day shooting with uh, uh, shooting while Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth and Margaret uh, visited the painter Edward Siago uh, they had a pleasant meal together and uh, he went to bed about half past ten at night he went downstairs so he didn't have to navigate the stairs a watchman saw him adjusting his new window latch at midnight but then the next morning servant came in to give him his breakfast and he was found that he had died in his sleep of a coronary thrombosis. What's that? Big one? Uh, well, yeah, yes, uh, the, um, as I said, the thickening of the arteries, oh, that's what the it? doctor had been worried about. Mm. So he died in 1952, aged just 56. He, well, I mean, I've seen pictures of him and he doesn't look very good. It's a funny thing, time. actually, where, like, it's that famous sort of scene of him waving her off at the yeah, airport, it's so awful. But actually, they thought he was getting better because he'd had that operation he'd was out and about again so actually the fact that he was there at all was actually seen as quite a yeah. set forward so they weren't expecting it it was a shock yeah. when it came uh, the public had been very moved by his illness and prayed for his recovery so then when he does die it's a genuine outpouring of grief and Churchill who's back as Prime Minister now mm. came back in 1951 when he was told there was bad news and the King had died he responded um, bad news the worst and he threw his state papers all across the room saying how unimportant these matters are and his secretary later came in and just found him sitting, staring straight ahead, with tears in his eyes. Yeah, he had his depression going on at this point, didn't he? He did, didn't he? Yeah. His friend had also just died, so... Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's not going to help. 
And so at his funeral, incredibly, had three queens in attendance. Mm. The first time she got his daughter, Elizabeth II, his wife, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and his mother, who's still alive, Queen Mary. Mary? Queen yeah, Mary. so she sees... Wow. How, how old was he when he died? 56. Oh, right. yeah. um, House of Commons sent a tribute, uh, a floral tribute in the shape of the George Cross, and Churchill signed it with the message for valour. Mm. But that is the end of George the Sixth, uh, not as long a life as perhaps he deserved. No, quite a troubled life, probably. Indeed, action-packed. Now, usually what we would do at this point, of course, is go on to review George the Sixth by all of his various factors. Already done that. <laughs> Let's not be too confusing. <laughs> <laughs> OK. And in fact, we have already done that, but the whole process has taken us really rather a long time. Love the war, you see. Love so all the stuff about the Second World War, and I, we're not going to be able to cut it down enough for it to be just one episode. Mm. So what we're going to do is we're going to stop at this point. So this is just going to be the biography, and you're going to listen to a different episode to hear all the factors and whether or not George VI Sixth gets the Rex Factor. And the answer is... <laughs> See you next time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.